This podcast was proudly produced by NZ Audio Editors. For all your editing services, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.nzaudioeditors.com. Ryan J. Melson and Greg Moll from One Plan for Retirement would like to welcome you to the NZ Guide to Financial Freedom. In this podcast, we'll break down the psychological tools and financial framework you need to live the life you want to ensure you don't run out of money before you run out of life. Well, we're here with uh, Jack from Mortgage Supply. Hey, how you doing? Good, mate. Good, good. It's a solid beard you got there. Yeah, Come yeah. Uh, trying. <laughs> trying. Any pointers you can give on growing a beard? I've learned how to oil shape? it, keep it nice, keep it nice and clean. That's right. the new thing. Do you uh, use the wax as well? Nah, you... nah. Just learned how to use an oil. <laughs> good man. We'll baby step into yeah. it. Yeah. Every time I try and shave, it just goes, I have to get rid of the whole thing. Nah, it doesn't work. Nah, I haven't worked it out. <laughs> so as, as well as being a mortgage broker, it's extraordinary. Mm. You also got... Some beard skills, it would seem. I didn't know that I should have that on my CV. I didn't <laughs> I know it was a skill tool today. There we go. Add it in, mate. Yeah, Add absolutely. It uh, and also, apart from the beard, we always try and look at like what got people into mm. the industries and how they started. And yep. like, my understanding is you've been in TSB Bank once in a while. But you also had a passion about cricket. Yeah, I mean, for me, yeah, I mean, I thought I was always going to do something with sport, um, you know, the management, coaching, all that sort of stuff. But I uh, came back from playing, I finished school normal time, 18, uh, went to, did my OE playing cricket in the UK, came back, didn't know what to do, tried to get a job with my old man uh, who does mortgage advising. Um, in quote, I was told to fuck off, um, <laughs> go get a real job. And that was a great thing. So I went to TSB, I did five years there, and basically every year I'd ask for a job from old man, and he said no, because it was based in designs so I could go out there and really learn to stand on my own two feet, you know, not too much, not be on the teat, I guess, and mm. um, and rely on, on, on him and, and where he's at. Uh, it was about me doing my own thing, you know, building my own reputation and it was the best thing that could have uh, happened. Um, so my goals were set around staying in the bank. Uh, corporate restructure happens. You know, a new person comes in who, who heads the um, retail space and all of a sudden you're not flavour of the month. Um, sometimes young people don't, you know, they don't, They almost want you back in your place sort of thing. And that's where I, there was an opportunity for me to move out and become a mortgage advisor. So I've been doing that for two years now. Um, and it was just around that, like getting rid of those corporate restraints, actually getting down to helping people and, and not worrying about, yeah, the corporate side of things and actually just doing the fundamentals of what I enjoyed to do, which was to add value and actually do some cool stuff with people's lending and, and add, you know, get them going. Um, yeah. What, what's it, what's it like? I've never worked in a corporate, mm. I don't think. I almost got a job at McDonald's, but failed the trial. So <laughs> I don't think oh I was made for corporate. Yeah, potentially not. So what, what's it like? So some people may go to these corporates mm. and banks. Like, is there a certain strain or pressure mm. they have to act a certain way and say a certain thing? Like, what, what's it actually like being in that corporate from a mortgage standpoint? Look, from my point of view, it gave me all the foundation and skills because they, allowed me to do up until the point things went bad they were you know pushing me putting me through all the training courses additional leadership things so I could really you know blossom as so there is opportunity because there's the money there and with the smaller bank as well I didn't get lost in the herd Um, but I imagine with the bigger banks you can become a bit of a number so 
there are benefits to what size of property you go into, but I think from a foundation's point of view, it teaches you what happens from inside. So when you come outside, you actually know what's going on on the other side of the fe- on the fence. You can show empathy. You can understand what um, constraints they're working under mm. so you can do your job better. So mm. if I can do my part easier, I'm going to make it better for this person. Uh, and those working relationships actually work really well because of probably that understanding. Makes sense. You have mm. to, yeah, you have to be strategic, you know. I mm. mean, a lot of people get a little bit too righteous, mm, you know, thinking 100%. like, hey, this is how it should be. But sometimes you – I think there's a – I was listening to Jocko. I don't right. know if you've seen that podcast. No. It's an ex-Navy SEAL okay. leadership guy, and he was talking about the longest way around is the fastest way to the finish. That's good. Because sometimes, you know, you have to go the indirect approach. Mm-hmm. So you want to flank someone in the sense that you're not going to their stronger, the stronger – the most fortified part of their mm-hmm. idea. So you're not going direct and telling them being all righteous. Mm. You're understanding and empathizing, like you're saying. 100%. So what would you, um, like, what do banks look for? You know, how, how do you start structuring your um, affairs in such a way? So you're going to these corporates, there's these people on these certain strains that may be a number or they may be part of the smaller fish. Like, what, what can you do to get a better approval opportunity, I guess, at the bank? Yeah, so I think I think first and foremost it's using an advisor that's understanding how each bank works because although you go to, um, you know, you might go on interest.co.nz and look at the rates and they're all very similar uh, when you've got the right deposit, the, the, the differences are huge in terms of how policies work, how they might test your ability to afford debt uh, and what they're looking for. So I think the first thing is understanding, uh, having an advisor who understands your position and understands the bank's and what they're looking for, um, because and then and working with them, there's no point in sitting in front of an advisor say I earn this much and this is what I want to buy and, and leaving it that. It's got to be a really comprehensive relationship where you're talking about goals, where your pain points are, what you're looking for, and and really get, dig deep so that that advisor's got all the tools in their kit bag to go and deliver you a world class, you know, firstly service but also approvals and everything like that. So just um just to help poor Jordan that's edit- editing the audio, there's some <laughs> crazy construction going on. They'll probably be in it, so don't judge them on that. Um, but so what would you, so you've got these different banks? Like, how does an advisor actually upskill to understand the difference? Do you read the wording? Do you go to these conferences? Like, how can people have a certain level of empowerment themselves? So because you might you're going to have great advisors, you're going to have bad advisors. So giving you the information to differentiate is going to be quite useful. Like how, how do you upskill? As an advisor, yeah. So look, I, I definitely attend all the conferences or workshops or even the banks put on uh, you know, clinics, I guess, to try and help upskill, you know, bring everyone up together. Um, additionally to that, yeah, policies, I, I definitely within the office aim to be an expert because I want to also help them. But if I know my stuff, then I'm going to help my clients. So I'm definitely always engaged in good conversations. I think it can be quite tough for, you know, one-man bands who are sitting there in isolation because the volume's probably not there in order to really learn everything, whereas I'm in an office full of plenty of advisors who are seeing stuff. So I'm every day learning what they're up to, which is going to help me and my clients as well because we're working together. Um, But, yeah, definitely head head in the books. When there's changes, you've got to know the changes and really adapt and be onto it. So what are you reading? Like a disclosure statements or like... each bank's got policies, um, okay. like you know around what sort of income they'll use, you know what they're looking for, and everything like that. And they're, they're ever moving beasts um, that can change, and you've got to be quick to react. So like you know how, for example, I guess um, you know with rental income, and you're putting it into a calculator, does that bank take a hundred percent of it? No, most banks are taking eighty percent or seventy five percent. Even just knowing little things like that as to where you're getting best bang for buck for a certain income type. 
uh, you know, is really important to making sure the, the right client's going to the right bank. Okay, fair. So let's say you were trying to decide on who a good mm-hmm. mortgage broker is. So mm-hmm. you, one of the things you mentioned was you don't necessarily want a one-man band because mm-hmm. they might not, not have transparency and over overview of everything that's gone through. Mm-hmm. I guess someone, you could mitigate that by having a really experienced advisor. Yeah, yeah, it was just, I mean, look, it's just an example of like, I think that seeing someone with lots of volume means there's lots of stories and understanding what's going on. Sorry, I just bumped my mic there. Sure. Um, so I think that's quite important is actually how much volume are they doing? Now, that doesn't mean it's quality. So obviously the next step is, you know, what sort of advice do they give? And it's not always going to be easy because you're not going to be able to see um, beneath the surface, but are they delivering? I don't know. What's their content like? How, the, how are they reputationally in market, on, online presence, things like that? Um, and also, you know, word of mouth, you know, have you been referred to them and do you trust where that's come from? Because, you know, with a good experience, Kiwis aren't always probably the best of um, passing it on unless it's a perfect experience, in my, in my opinion. Um, so if you get that referral from a trusted source, then they probably are good okay. at what they do. Is, is there like a place you can search, like in our space, there's different governing bodies. One of them is Financial Advice New mm. Zealand, that if you're a part of, then you can search for different advisors and see what they offer. Is there a, a searchable way for mortgage brokers or like? There's a few people that have tried to compile a list of the best uh, ones, but that's, you know, that's yeah, opinion based and it doesn't mean it's, you know, there's some great ones out there. And I think it's just, yeah, understanding what's important to you. Do you want someone who's, um, you know, really empathetic and understanding? Do you want a number cruncher? And actually looking at yourself as to what expectations you have um, but yeah seeing how long they've been around for is it are they a big company small I, it just depends what you're looking for i think fair well this mm. will be a challenge this is a good test of your empathy mm. uh, I, I learned a while ago to not compete um like still obviously take the actions of a competitive person but mm-hmm. freely give information as a means absolutely of connecting because i mean if the tide rises all boats rise with it 100 percent. so what who would you list as your best competitors Either if it's a person or companies or just some, like someone that's in the conversation. Yeah, look, I I look at um, putting me on the spot. Uh, Chris Peterson Mortgages, I think, do a good job. Okay. Um, Ryan Smuts is someone who I uh, initially met when he was starting out, so I think we've had a similar journey to where we're going. So I look at him as someone who's quite good at what he does. Okay. I know you spoke to the Mortgage HQ um, guys, and they put out some good content. And I, I like people who are doing content. Uh, it's okay. not not a lot of uh, out there. <laughs> no. Um, no. So people who are having a crack and trying to make it engaging and fun, um, and giving it away for free, so that you know people can enjoy it as good stuff. Um, if I was to go, we'll go two there. I think those those. Are yeah, good. well done. Yeah, I, I didn't even tell you I was going to answer. And I didn't know I was going to. So. Yeah, you did well. <laughs> Not, yeah, might, the boss might look at that and go, "What are you doing?" But that's okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Or just well, you know, I'm well. Yeah, sort of, yeah. But- Internally as well, though, I'm I'm competing with my colleagues every day um, because we try and make it competitive to to really spur each other on. So we have our little games and stuff like that, and my colleagues are my competitors too in a good way, though, like a you know, friendly competition. Yeah, good, because um, so I, I used to handicap my competitors mm. in the organization. Mm-hmm. So like I had a team of 15 that yeah. I helped manage commission on yeah, sales. Yeah. And I'll just make sure my team won. Fuck the rest. <laughs> so it was bad for the overall culture for the office. So mm. it's a balance. Like, how do you balance that between friendly competition that's potentially good, mm. encouraging, versus like, fuck you, I'm going to own you? Yeah, it's an interesting one. Eh? I think it's why you're doing it. Like, you know, obviously, if there's big, we're not doing, we're doing it for a beer at the end of the day, sort yeah. of thing. We're keeping it real friendly, but we just like bragging rights. We've got a bunch of guys who are sporty people, so it's it's that, and it's bringing up together. But we congratulate each other when we do well, but. We're also pissed off if we're coming in <laughs> in second as well. No one likes to lose, right? So, yeah. Yeah. Is, there, is there like the other challenge as well? So, 
normally from a leadership standpoint, mm. you want to actually encourage process focus mm. because sales fluctuate. Mm-hmm. So are the KPIs, are there some levels of like um, having the right kind of people? Like, because the challenge is if you're always incentivizing for results, mm-hmm. then that could incentivize a culture where they're not necessarily putting the interest of the client first and pushing through people that might not necessarily. Like, is there a way they mitigate that? Yeah, I mean, look, and at the end of that comes back to why we're doing it, which is friendly um kind of banter's hype competition and for us within our group who's trying to do some cool stuff together within the, the wider business um, we, we're every we meet fortnightly and we're talking about things like hey how are you doing your refix processes you know how are we nurturing people from you know maybe they want to work with us to hey we're really engaged so we talk process and then we will every now and then talk about how your month went sales so it's actually really process based and then the fun sides how did that Turn out so you are you are right because yeah the the outcome will take care of itself if your your processes are uh, on point I guess um, with the right attitude and and it's about intent you know you're there to rip off old ladies or you're there to really make a a difference (laughs) right you know what I mean and it's just about an individual's approach to the industry and what they're trying to add to it. We interrupt this message just to let you know that there's a free consultation. Anyone that listens to this podcast, there's a link at the bottom. Just click on it, reach out, and we'll see if we can add value. Just the only thing we ask, if you're paying off debt, that should be your number one focus. The two people we can help are either working towards a goal like saving for their first home or someone that's paid off debt and worried about retirement. So if you want a bit of guidance and a bit of help, reach out. Don't let money come between you and a better future. No, no, fair. I've stitched you up twice now, so you have. you've done well, You've got to throw me a bone now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. So what would be um, like advice you'd give for the – or maybe actually, yeah, mm-hmm. throw you a bone. What would be a point of difference that you'll notice within yourself or the organization mm-hmm. that you guys provide that you don't necessarily think the market's doing in the right way? Yeah, I think I think that, you know, we're talking about that team and that culture base. I think we've worked really hard um, over the last couple of years to really grow our culture and, and be working together. Like we've got our WhatsApp group where there's – you know, 35 advisors on there, plus all the support staff who are, you know, talking about um, how do we get this deal done? You know, how are you finding this and being really collaborative? And I, it, it's it's interesting where, where, when I talk to maybe peers outside of it as to, you know, are they working together or is it, you know, kind of left to your own device? And I think as a company, you know, I could sit here and talk about oh, how great am I and all that sort of <laughs> stuff, but it's actually, I'm only strong as my teammates are. And I think we're doing a lot together to make sure that each individual can provide a world-class service because we're doing it together that sounds probably a bit corny but (laughs) when i'm saying it i know it sounds corny but i mean it so oh well (laughs) yeah i mean it's it's a better approach than egotistical see i mean i threw your bone you went with it you did well (laughs) so what's um with first-time buyers so Mm. i imagine being a younger person is that more of the demographic that you would come across or like is there is there who would you have as your ideal client or what do they look like? Yeah, I think um I try and stay open minded and not try and be um you don't you know you don't want to be too wide that you don't talk to anyone but you don't want to be too narrow that you're shutting off others right so I think naturally because of my age first home buyers are an easy uh, way of doing things because of the fact that the a lot of my peers are in that space mm. I'm a big fan of uh, the investor space because it allows me to use what I think my skill sets are which is you know being credit savvy. And actually allowing you know tight situations to get the job done or to add value to people's you know situation, you know extracting equity out so they can do some cool things with it or, or what have you. So I think firstly it's an attitude of a client who wants to do something is the first thing I'm excited when I'm talking to someone. Um, but yeah, first time buyers maybe you've bought one and looking to buy their next okay. um, through to you know I've got clients with 12, 14, 15 properties sort of thing and that's no problem either. So 
Yeah. All right. So those first home buyers, what, mm. what should they think about, and and where do you think the mortgage broker adds that value? Yeah, I think starting early um, with actions is the key. Um, not waiting until you think you're ready, and then just all of a sudden you find out you're two years away because you didn't make good use of the time in the build up. So I think if you're having that feeling like I want to buy a house, I don't know when, I don't know how, you know, take action. So whether that's you know talking even talking and you think you're going to waste my time I don't care if we talk in two years later I don't mind so you know we setting goals together um, around you know you need to get to x by uh, you know x deposit or you're you're able to service this now this amount of uh, debt is that enough for you not quite okay what can we do about it and all those sort of things so but yeah budget I think is quite a key one and actually if you're not a disciplined saver doing something about it um, so you're setting clear goals with your deposit because that's usually that's the first that's entry into it is have you got the right deposit and then we can look at everything after uh, is a good place to start okay and and like so to get that approval from the mm. bank is there something like you know you consolidate your debt and then you <laughs> show that you pay it all down before you look at a mortgage or like what are the what is preparing yourself what's the best things you can do to make sure you've got the highest chance of an approval yeah i think um yeah understanding your own position and and not there's no you know, straight tick boxes, and if you've got short-term debt, you can still get a first home. It does. It just. It's just about looking at those. Um, you know, what incomes coming in and what's going out, and then the bank judges your you on basically what that surplus is as to your strength of borrowing uh, to afford a mortgage in real simple terms. And you know, are you managing that debt? Are you still saving at a good uh, rate? You know, we look at things and sometimes keep it as simple as rent plus savings equals mortgage repayment. You know, keep it real simple as your is your rent plus your savings equaling what you could afford as a as a mortgage, and that's a good place to start. Is are you showing the bank that you're in this and you're and you're doing something towards it? Uh, Pre approval is key. I think it also is key for just you understanding clarity as to what you can do, but then also you're able to go to market and you can be quick to you know put offers on places rather than having to go 15 working days because you haven't started the finance process yet and they don't even know whether you're going to be able to complete the purchase. Going, I have a pre-approval. I can go five working days on my due diligence. You know, it sounds a lot more attractive. Mm. We see people save, you know, thirty, forty grand on a purchase price easy because they're quick and they've got a good, clean offer. So with that pre-approval, mm-hmm. um, so you've gone to the bank. You've like, what does that look like? So you get the pre-approval, yeah. and then from there, does that mean you've started the debt? Does that mean, or is that just saying, hey, as soon as you go to purchase the house, you can use it? Like, what does that look? Like? Yeah, the process is, you know, I'll, I'll interview and understand needs and objectives, gather all the paperwork, which is the the toughest part and the big mm. pain point. Um, you know, meeting AML and compliance standards, as you'd know. Yeah, there we go. Um, so doing that, you know, gather it all in, and then it's that analysis part as to which bank's fit for purpose. Um, you know, I might just send it to one because I'm, you know, I know that bank inside out and I feel comfortable that, that that's there. I might send it to two just to hedge your bets, depends what happens. And then you go to the client and going, you know, here's your pre-approval or pre-approvals. It means you, you know, you can get this money if you do X, Y, and Z. So they have a list of conditions that are on there. You might have to find a property that's acceptable to the bank. You might need a registered valuation. Uh, you might need to close a closer credit card, things like that. Hmm. And then the client can go to the market and, and basically start shopping, you know. Yeah. The pre so you've got these options and they mm-hmm. all say yes. Does that put you at any risk? Is there any consequences of having too many? Um I mean, look people talk about not having um too many credit checks, you know, every time I approach a bank for a client that's a credit check on their thing. And there's no need to have five pre approvals if if um you know, one or two will do the triggers to comparing options for that person. Because you might even before you submit say, Hey, I'm thinking of this or thinking of that, you know, this these are the outcomes, what do you think of it? 
rather than going through a process which might take you, you know, five to ten working days to get the approval, but you're never going to take it anyway. So you've just, you wasted know, disturbed, wasted um, your time, the client's time, and uh, the banker's time, and those relationships are key. You know, if I've got good relationships for me with the banks and I need to call a favour, that's really important. You know, mm. what, what's my credibility with the bank? Because I need Mr. and Mrs. Smith to have a really quick approval or a sharper rate or a certain de- service delivery, you know what I mean? So I'm always conscious of that as not as to work well with the banks because, you know, you're going to need to call on them. Fair. Does that mean you go to certain individuals with a bank? Like how do you build a relationship with a bank member? Yeah, so basically the banks all have a relationship manager that you're assigned sort of thing, and that's when things are either going right or wrong. You can deliver feedback or get them involved um, where needed. Uh, at, the, at the end of the day, they're sitting in these hubs with, you know, lots of staff members in them and you're dealing with, you know, m- many of them every day. You, you'll get runs on the board, though, if you know what I mean. So you'll, like, deal with someone, you've had three great experiences with them and you're having good banter and it's working well. It does make a difference because yeah. there's that trust yeah. that, you know, if I send you a deal to assess as you're a bank assessor and you know that I deliver good quality applications, you, there's an element of trust when you're going through it going, yeah, this is this is good. He backs the client, I back the client sort of thing. Hmm. Um, and that might be subconscious, it might be conscious, but that's we, we're, we're people at the end of the day. Yeah, and I there is an emotional that. element to to everything we do. You know, that no, works. There's yeah. no doubt. Even yeah. just food, just like you, you befriend the cashier, they'll give you something. Exactly, it just happened. Exactly. So, okay, so you befriend, so you built this relationship. Does that mean as well you would have to say no to some mortgages because you yeah. don't want to jeopardize that relationship with the bank? Yeah, or I don't want to put the clients in a position where I'm going because I won't send an approval. I'm not going to get basically. You know, not you know, you you're looking for high percentage approval rates. Because you know your you know your onions before you're submitting something, right? Um, so, if I don't think there's a hope in hell of doing it, well, then it's wrong of me to overpromise the client by sending something to the bank without it ever going to, you know. And and reputationally as well, what am I like if I tell the client, yeah, I'm going to send this to this bank, and you're going to get this approval when it never comes through, right? So. And I don't want to set up the client for failure either, you know. I'd rather, if it's not right for them at this time, we talk about it, we coach them through what the next steps are for them in order to be in a position where they can execute what they're doing. Or are we changing the plans to more realistic outcomes, you know? It just depends. What what makes someone fail? Like, what are the common things that you would... Well, you obviously have a high approval rate, but from other advisors. Oh, yeah, and it's... I guess that sounds... Yeah, without... That's not trying to brag. That's like I might not submit some things that aren't right, for example. But, you know, if their income can't meet the requirements of the debt they're looking for or they're not managing what they've already got, will the bank actually extend to them? Uh, You know, bad credit checks, um, you know, not enough deposit, things like that. Yeah, as an example. Okay. And and the other demographic you talked about was people that had rental properties. Mm -hmm. So... What can you do? Let's say you've got your family home and mm-hmm. you've been paying it down at a certain point and you're looking into the rental space. Mm-hmm. Like, How can you set that up and what do you need to look for and how does that sort of work? Yeah, so the first gateway is equity or deposit. Um, nothing gets off the ground without something to you know to go towards that. So it was a lot easier last year when all the banks were letting you have a 20% deposit towards an investment property regardless of whether it was new um, or existing. But that's always going to be the um, the first measurement is to see what equity or deposit we can extract. So it's actually making sure that you know the value that we're putting against these properties is accurate or correct, so that we know what we can get out because we're going to you know re leverage that um, property in order to pull it out. So you know as an example, you've got a million dollar home. You you know you put down twenty percent at the start. As an example, you've now got a seven hundred k left uh, mortgage. So your usable equity because we can borrow up to eighty percent is a uh, hundred thousand dollars. 
So that's 20% towards a $500,000 property. Now, for a lot of people that won't do the job, but for example, there's one non-bank lender who will lend uh, with 80% lending, 20% deposit against that sort of uh, situation. And the rates are still around about, you know, three and a half percent roughly. Mm. Um, or the banks will go, okay, but it has to be a new build because um, we need it to be exempt from the loan to value ratio rules. And then they just need to, now we need to figure out whether they can afford the debt. And that's where it takes that time to really understand, you know, which banks they're going to be able to uh, lend with. You've got some clients who might be able to borrow with anyone. It doesn't matter because their numbers are strong, but most people aren't. So it's just around ma- it's matchmaking. It's you know it's Tinder. It's Tinder for for mortgages, I guess. You know I'm getting you know client Mr. and Mrs. Jones to the right bank to the right you know make that connection and and then they can go and do some business together. You Tinder, know Tinder for mortgages. There you go. <laughs> well played, the matchmaker extraordinaire. Yeah. <laughs> so this will be tricky because as you say, the landscape changes. Mm. Um, do you, do you sort of see with banks like um, some are useful for certain things mm-hmm. or is it the product or, mm-hmm. or sort of what are you? Yeah, absolutely. They've all got their their different benefits or needs, um, you know, uh, and that's just depending on what a client's situation is. You know, some banks will only do a shorter loan term for investment properties versus um, other banks. So usually we won't go there because uh, that does that hurts cash flow or allows doesn't allow them to borrow again because the loan terms are, are quite short. Um, so we won't focus there. Uh, there's one of the big banks is no good in construction, so we try and avoid them as much as possible. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, so yeah, they've all got their niches and they're quite like, well, I, in our office, we we know where we're sending deals quite well because we know where their, I guess, pain points are. Hmm. Other things are, as, you know, revolving credits or, you know, um, or offset products as to which banks will give what sort of size for different needs. And is that going to be enough for the client to do what they want to do? So we'd potentially focus on a different bank to get that equity out. So the clients can do what they want. So yeah, they're definitely very, very vast. I think pricing's something that all of them have got quite in common, but it's everything else that's just a it's a lottery, you know, with what's what. Okay, makes sense. Well, what about so you talked about revolving credit? You know, mm-hmm. maybe there's table loans and mm-hmm. what, what what sort of the pros and cons of these different vehicles and where you might recommend a type of loan revolving credit? You know, where they feel they got um, sporadic income or they feel more comfortable that they can contribute. Mm. Um, to the varying different times and be consistent? Like, what are the different type of vehicles that people can use? Yeah, and I think that's where the, like, kind of the art and the math start to, to kind of go there because someone who might be on an amazing income with, you know, maybe they've got commission payments coming in so they can, you know, get debt down quick, um, but they've got no control uh, with their money. Yeah, maybe the product's screaming for them to have a revolving credit so they can reduce debt quickly, but the, the person themselves can't manage it. So it's just trying to ta- you know try and find out where their appetite is. Uh, that construction's good, isn't it? Um, <laughs> best of luck with that. <laughs> so so, but that, you know, trying to balance those two things, um, and and it's just trying to understand what their goals are. But a revolving credit can be fantastic to set people up for having. I don't know, the ability to buy another house because the deposit's sitting there in a facility ready to go and you only pay interest on what you actually owe uh, with it or whether they've got, you know, in the future they're planning on having um, a family and they just want a safety net or they've put all their savings into the house. Again, safety net's important to have when they're not paying interest on it or actually drawing down on it and reducing debt quickly because, as I said before, they've got good commission payments coming in. The simplest thing we usually see, though, is is fixed table loans and that's just, um, and you know, fixing one or two years um, is, is the is quite common, and then it's just looking at whether they've got goals over three, four, and five years that would influence us to to fix for longer. Uh, it's probably when they were as low as two point nine nine percent for five years. We saw quite a lot of our investor clients fix that, 
And that was just on the basis that that's cheap money and mm. it gives them certainty for a five-year period that they're like, I'm not going to sell this property so I want to know what my payments are for five years, um, things like that. So, do you, do, do you have like an ongoing, like I, I was weighing up in my mind if <laughs> you should just pause the podcast temporarily but the, it sounds like there's somewhat uncon- under control but <laughs> felt like there's a bulldozer within the room. I so vibrating. <laughs> yeah, I was, I was shaking. <laughs> You're holding it together, mate. You're doing well but. Was there like is there an ongoing sort of partnership with mortgage broker? Like, do you do annual reviews or like when that loan period comes up, then you reach out? And then also, are you being strategic right now with those rental property? Are they going more interest only to make the repayment because they can't offset their interest costs like they used to? Yeah, and I think the first part of that having those annual reviews is important. I think um, trying to understand where people are and not just going, "Oh, do you want to fix for another year and see you later?" I think it's actually going, "How are you doing? How's you know any changes since we last spoke? Any changes to what you're trying to achieve?" And really engaging again. Um, so yeah, trying to really understand where people are at, so that whatever advice we're going to bring to the table with uh, any changes to the loan is tailor made. Uh, for them and then the other thing is it might be <laughs> you're doing well yeah but... no no trying to focus. <laughs> Jesus um, uh, so you're trying to focus on whether actually is that bank still the right bank for them and whether there's an opportunity to move them to a new bank who's going to do different things or more things for them can they get a cash back on the on the way and net uh, you know a couple of thousand dollars here and there after solicitor fees um, disappear you know what's what's the right thing for them in the moment so yeah annual review is very important um, and then just in terms of yeah, the second part to that question around um, oh the the costs around interest um, yeah, and the deductibility. Advice. Yeah, look, it's a really tough one because the rules aren't fully set as to what it's going to look like. So, even talking to the accountants I trust within the property space, you know, and I very much take their advice on a lot of these sort of um, things, is that there's not complete understanding of what's what. So we can't be definitive, and a lot of things are going to be driven by the cash flow of a property as to where things are at. And yeah, interest only is definitely going to help people with that tax bill that's coming through. Um, because yeah, you can't offset the the interest costs. Um, it will help that, but yeah. But then some clients are very adverse to interest only, and they go, "Well, I wear the bill, and I'm going to take pay the principal down because you know I'm allergic to debt. I don't like it, and that's okay." So yeah, probably not definitive because the rules aren't set either. You know, fully mm. fair. Well, I think we should capitalize on this quiet moment because you've added <laughs> a lot of value, and you've you've had a few stitch ups. So I don't want to put you through more. <laughs> But like you had your own podcast, you probably mm. got your own content out there. Mm. Like, what's the what would you want people to take away from this episode, and also how do they find you? Yeah, look, um, I think from my point of view, you know, regardless of where you're at, it's just around taking action, and whether that's just a conversation with, um, you know, someone like a mortgage advisor, or you know, just beginning things so that you can put yourself in a position. You know, it's okay to be five years away from your goal, but it's about what small goals can you start creating and who can you bring along for the ride to help you. You know, I'm, I'm a huge advocate for building your team around you and having the people in your in your pocket almost, you know. So the key way is to DIY some things and, and you know, you get to the end of that and you, you never know whether you could have done it better um, or if they say no, could you have done it in a different way. Um, so, yeah, building your team is important to me. Um, and then yeah, for for finding me, so yeah, I'm on um, you know Instagram, Facebook, uh, taking your advice. I'll be on TikTok yeah, by the end of the man. week. Got a challenge by the end of the week. Good man. Um, so you know LinkedIn, just find Jack Winler. Uh, I've got the Jack Winler audio show on. Uh, not as creative as you with a name, um, so I landed with that one. But that's what I do a podcast. Need to do a bit more. I uh, need to get my energy, but do that as well. Just just try and talk to people and add that value so people can yeah be empowered, I guess, to do some stuff. So yeah, uh, Jack Winler on everything basically. And, 
yeah, drop me a message. Sweet, mate. If, if, if he writes mortgages as well as he keeps his composure while ball goes <laughs> going on, it's a... Uh, doing well Cheers, so thanks mate. for coming along Jay. thanks very much appreciate being on no worries and uh, oh yeah nzaudioeditors.com they can't necessarily remove uh, bulldozers <laughs> that are within the room uh, but uh, it makes us sound crispy crew uh, yeah, crispy good I can't even say words <laughs> I could edit that out if I wanted I won't but you know <laughs> nzaudioeditors.com cheers awesome man. cheers <laughs>